So if you're using your Bible or the bulletins, I will not read all of Isaiah as our scripture reading, but we are going to take a 30,000 foot overview of Isaiah in the next 20 to 75 minutes. Isaiah is, uh, Isaiah is well known to many Christians um, uh, for a lot of the uh, kind of Christmassy prophecies that come out of it, and we'll, we'll look at some of those. Obviously, we can't skip those, uh, but uh, Isaiah is, is probably one of the biggest prophet books in the Old Testament, and it's interesting to read Isaiah and realize that, in one sense, Isaiah is a mini-story of salvation. Like, it, it begins with the problem, and it talks about uh, a servant who will come to answer the problem, and about what full restoration will look like uh, when the problem is finally dealt with entirely. So for our scripture reading, we'll simply read the very popular uh, passage that maybe some of you are aware of in, in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, but then we'll, we'll back up and, and see from the beginning uh, through to the end just the story of salvation as Isaiah was told it. So if you would, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, our reading will be from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22 through chapter 9, verse 7. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. It's hard not to uh, enter the Christmas season or the Advent season uh, without recognizing the whole contrast of light and dark. Uh, in one sense, the Christmas season, the beauty of the Christmas season doesn't actually exist without darkness. And, uh, that's, why, that's why we set our timers on our lights outside uh, to come on at night rather than at noon, because there's just nothing very impressive about twinkly lights on your house when the sun is blazing. Uh, when it's bright out, you don't really notice little lights in the window. When the lamps are on inside, you don't notice candles on the table. Now, at Advent, we manufacture this darkness. Tonight, we'll have a service, and the lights, the house lights, I guess we would call them, will be off. And it'll just be a darker service, but for the candles that are lit and for the candles that, uh, that will be lit as we sing the closing songs. But it's a manufactured darkness. We're faking the need for candles. In fact, when we were renting from schools, we used those little LED candles, little tea lights, and you had to turn them on at just the right time. Otherwise, it was useless because the lights were still on. So not only we were faking the need for candles, we were faking the candles themselves. And so it's nice to be allowed to actually use something that could burn the whole house down. <laughs> there will be instructions about that tonight. But in the real world, you don't need to manufacture darkness. Darkness exists. The world is broken. And we are in desperate need of light. The first five chapters of Isaiah give this kind of precursor, everything is broken, understanding. The, the men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, we're working our way through the book of Isaiah. And we're looking at one chapter a week, which means we'll be in Isaiah for at least two years because when you take some breaks and take time off for the summer, and there's 66 chapters, uh, we are going to be in Isaiah for a while. So you have not missed much, men, if you want to come and join us at 6.30 in the morning on Zoom and pick up with us. But even in, in chapter 5, you've got this, um, this verse, and by the way, we're just going to work our way slowly through this. I would recommend this time, if you never have before, Pick up a pew Bible if you didn't bring your Bible, and then you'll be able to flip through and go with me through Isaiah, and um, or use your whatever app you use for your Bible. But we're going to work our way through, and it's important that you at least see the words because I might be lying to you about what I claim to be reading. But in, in Isaiah 5.20... He says simply in similar fashion to what Jesus said in our 
called a confession. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's interesting that the first five chapters of Isaiah are not written to those evil people out there, but they're written to God's people. They're written about God's people. That there are people who call themselves by the name of the Lord, but who also call evil good and good evil. Who call darkness light and light darkness, bitter sweet, sweet bitter. We see that today. Now, it's easy for us to look outside the church and say, oh, yes, I see that every day. People are calling good evil and evil good. But you see it in places that call themselves the church even, who are now saying, well, what God calls evil, we're going to now call good. And then as a result, the things that God calls good, we're going to now call evil. And they do this and they claim to be speaking in the name of the Lord, even as they say these things. But in chapter 6, a very uh, maybe you're familiar with some of chapter 6, where Isaiah is called by God, and we get a lot of the imagery from our, our song from the confession, let all mortal flesh keep silence. In chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In just this one moment in Isaiah's life, we see the entire issue before us. One, God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is all good all the time. And we are not. Here is Isaiah. He's a prophet of God. The very his, his voice is the very instrument that is used to do God's work. And what does he says? I am a person of unclean lips. Even the very instrument I use to serve God is unclean. Woe is me, I am undone. God is holy. We are sinful. And the only hope is atonement. The only hope is that some sacrifice will turn God's wrath away. That sacrifice, like the angel brings a coal, not just any coal, but a coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. And he touches his lips and he says, your guilt is taken away. 
The very guilt of your sin is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. And then how does this work for the rest of God's people? How is he going to accomplish this for all of his people? And so we come to to the passage we just read and this picture of light and darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light in Isaiah 9, 2. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This isn't a manufactured darkness. This is the reality of life in this world. This isn't them overselling it. This isn't them dwelling on it or moping about. This is the reality of life on a people who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The the phrase deep darkness there in Isaiah 9-2, it's the same phrase in Psalm 23-4. So in Psalm 23-4, we're told, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. To use the language here would be, even though I walk through the valley of of deep darkness. Like we assume that the psalmist, that David, must have faced some horrific loss, some great sorrow, but he's just saying, even when I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, as Isaiah is saying here, the people who dwell, they're not just walking through, they dwell in the land of the shadow of death. You Dwell in the land of the shadow of death. On them, on you, a light has shone. A son is going to be given. A child is going to be born. This child, his name will be Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, this child is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. It will continue to increase exponentially the peace that He brings. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish all of this. It's it's the Lord of hosts' plan. This This isn't some child who's who's tricking God into being nice now. This is God's plan. This is the plan from the beginning, that into the darkness, light will shine. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah gets a picture of what it's going to look like when that, that When that government and that peace continues to increase, he says, listen, on the mount of the Lord of hosts, it will be, it'll make a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. What is that covering? Again, the darkness. There is a veil, a veil that has been spread over all the nations. What is this veil? What is this darkness? He will swallow up, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, if you read your Bible a lot or, or read passages from other sections, you'll notice in Isaiah language that sounds very familiar if you've read the book of Revelation. The promise in the book of Revelation that He will wipe away every tear from our eyes that comes right from Isaiah. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away. The reason that He defeats death, the reason He can wipe away all of our tears is because He has taken our reproach away. He has taken away the guilt of our sin. It's not just that He's whitewashing it. It's not that He's sweeping it under the rug. He is taking away the guilt of our sin, and that's why there will be no more tears. That's why there will be no more death, because death and sorrow are the result of sin. They are symptoms of sin. They are the aftermath of sin. There is no sorrow when there is no sin. There is no death where there is no sin. Now, as I say that, I realize maybe you're hearing me say, when you're sad, you're sinning. That's not, not what I'm saying. I'm saying sin it has resulted in death and loss and misery and sickness and sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrows. And when God sends His Son to finally conquer all of it, all of it will be conquered together. Sin, your reproach, gone. And with it, death. And with it, tears. In fact, He says in chapter 26, verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy. There are many who claim that you can't find any language about resurrection in the Old Testament. Well, I mean, you can, you just have to read it. Your dead shall live, Isaiah says. Their bodies shall rise. He's not just saying, oh, you'll have a nice spiritual moment. You'll be absorbed into the Borg and all will be one. No, he says their bodies will live. You who dwell in the dust, wake up. The earth will give birth to the dead, he says. And so in chapter 40, we're flying now, aren't we? A lot of it has a lot of like, oh, this country's bad, that country's bad, that country's bad. We all know that. But there's stuff that we need to see, though. Here in chapter 40, he says, comfort. Again, some of this it comes straight out of Handel's Messiah, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it goes straight into Handel's Messiah. I'm not saying Handel wrote Isaiah. Please don't. I totally said that backwards. But comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah 40, verse 1 says God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Can we have a moment of like honesty about the greatest battles we're facing right now? Wouldn't they be more endurable if you were a better person? 
like the battles you're facing right now. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's here at church. The battles you're facing, wouldn't they be more endurable if you were facing them better? If you were not sinning in the midst of that same battle? The biggest war you have right now is not with the person sitting next to you. It's not with your boss. It's not with your subordinate or your coworker. The biggest battle you are facing right now is with yourself. Is over your own sin. As Paul says, I hate the things I do. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. The things I know I shouldn't be doing, those are the things I keep turning back to. In fact, when I want to do good, Paul says, that's when sin is right there with me. Like, have you ever noticed that? When you're reading like a sports article, do you ever not often fall asleep in the middle of that? No, but man, start reading the Bible. Actually, just have a thought about reading the Bible. That's practically itself a cure for insomnia. Decide that you're going to sit and pray with your spouse. Decide you'll do it in the mornings. Oh, that's impossible. I haven't slept this late in months. Decide you're going to do it at night. You know, the doctor says I do need a solid seven hours of sleep, so... Let's try for tomorrow morning again. Oh, slept through that alarm again. When I want to do good, that's when sin is there. Speak tenderly. Tell her her warfare has ended and her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The forgiveness that God offers, the washing of your iniquity is not just enough It's double. She has received double for all her sins. You have twice the amount of mercy that you actually need. That's incredible. That's incredible. Who is this that's going to come? In verse 10 of chapter 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And you expect, all right, here he comes. He's going to open one of those cans and everyone's going to get theirs. And it says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In chapter 42, verse 3, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Chapter 42 begins talking not now about the Lord of hosts, but about this other person, this servant that the Lord is going to send. And sometimes the servant sounds like he's Israel himself, but then sometimes he sounds like, oh, he's going to save Israel. And sometimes he sounds like he's been sent from God. Sometimes he sounds like he's God. He says in chapter 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice. 
A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you feel like a bruised reed right now? Do you feel like the things that have happened to you in your life, the choices that you've made in your life, like if just if someone just accidentally brushes against you in the wrong way, that will be it. You are going to snap. This servant says he won't even break a bruised reed. Do you feel like your faith is all but gone, that it's just the smallest, faintest glow, and that if someone blows wrong, it will be gone forever. This servant says he will not quench even the faintest burning wick. God says of this servant, later in chapter 42 in verse Six, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoner. Here's that light again, to open blind eyes. Bring them out from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. And I will lead the blind. So here's the servant is leading the blind, but now the Lord is leading the blind In a way they don't know, in paths they haven't known, I will guide them and turn the darkness before them into light. Chapter 49, it goes on and speaks of this servant again. Listen to me, coastlands, and give attention, people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. Now it sounds like the servant himself is speaking. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Again, in Revelation, and the, when, the, when Christ returns, the, the double-edged sword that will come from his mouth. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, and he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant to bring Jacob back to Him. So you see what I mean? In in verse 4, He's Israel. In verse 5, He's been sent to save Israel. But then in verse 6, it's even more amazing, especially for most of us sitting here in this room. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes will fall prostrate before you, prostrate, because of the Lord who is faithful. In chapter 50, God says, let him, in 50 verse 10, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, 
trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And although chapter 53 doesn't talk much about light and darkness, chapter 53 shows us how the servant is going to accomplish this. He will give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He will give himself over to sinners. In chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty or form that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we get this small picture in Isaiah 6. God is holy. You are sinful. You need atonement. But more than just a coal from a spent altar, you need one who will take your sin on himself, who will bear your grief, carry your sorrow, be pierced for your transgression and crushed for your iniquity. Isaiah says, we've all like sheep gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the end of chapter 53, in verse 12, it says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for transgressors. Back in verse 11, we're told that he made many to be accounted righteous. It is by his sacrifice that we can be counted as righteous. And then in many ways, from, from here to the end of the book, is just the glorious results of what this one has done in our place. In chapter 59, verses 9 and 10, we hope for light and, and behold darkness. We grope for the walls like the blind. We stumble at noon as in twilight. And yet in verse 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. In verse 6 of chapter 60. It says, they will bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. 
it, it seems like it's a poem written like two decades after the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, not a poem written 800 years before he showed up. 800 years, just this throwaway half a verse, they will bring gold and frankincense and will bring the good news, the praise of the Lord. In verse 11, your gates will be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. In Revelation, it says the gates will always be open. They'll never be shut. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel, those who have despised God. How many of us in this room if we were honest, would say there was a time that I despised God and He rescued me. He turned my heart back to Him. Verse 18, violence shall be no more. Devastation or destruction will not be heard of in your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor brightness shall, nor for brightness the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And do you remember, Revelation says, there was no need for sun or moon, for the Lord was their light. The Lord is your everlasting light. Your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. Like this is verse 19 or 20 and 21. Your days of mourning will be ended because your people will all be righteous. Like that is such a promise. We will be delivered from our struggle with sin. Chapter 61. Jesus read this the first time he spoke in a synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and open up the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning. This isn't just, hey, eventually we'll get over it. This is, there will not be mourning. There will not be ashes. There will not be, there will be comfort and gladness because death will be defeated. Praise instead of a faint heart. In chapter 65, we're almost done. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah chapter 65, it sounds just like Revelation 21. And behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Her people will be filled with gladness. There will be no more, no more shall be heard in her the sound of weeping. 
or the cry of distress. The only way that this can exist is if there is no more sin and no more death. Chapter 65, verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. No more loss of children before they should have been lost. No more death of husbands or wives. It will never happen again. Christ will defeat death and sin forever. In chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, the last chapter, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And so what is it that God wants? if not a house, if not a place to rest. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. God, would you make us humble? Would you make us contrite? Would you break our hearts for our sin? Would you open our eyes to see your holiness and our unholiness? And would you undo us? And then show us the way. Show us your servant, your son, our Savior, our Lord. God, make atonement for our sins. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.